Tau mai hotumai ki te roki roki o te awa o pāwaho, kia ora anō. Welcome to the podcast of the River o Pawaho. This is part four of a series we did on the Sermon on the Plain. In this episode we hear from one of the poets amongst our community. We pray that as Jess speaks, that her words and God's words that were spoken through her speak to your heart as well. We've been working through the Sermon on the Plain, the weird cousin of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and we've been cruising through it for a while. And we got to this set of scriptures that are all these beautiful metaphorical pictures and images that have these poetic depth to them. And Amy and I were talking about, out of her and I, like, who's going to have the best sort of like poetic insight? And then we realized that in amongst our little community here, we actually have a champion, award-winning, amazing poet. (laughs) So some, some of you won't know this about Jess, but Jess is an outstanding poet who competes and has won a whole lot of competitions and is flying to Auckland and all around the world. I'm making some of that up. But she is actually absolutely incredible. And so when we got to this piece of scripture, we thought, who better to try and unpack this for us than, than a poet, than someone who speaks and thinks from that, um, from that way of um, engaging with language. So please, can you give a massive The River welcome to Jess? Wow, that was an intro. That was awesome. So we just quickly pray. Thank you, God, that you are already here. And we just welcome you to just, yeah, just keep on coming and um, that you would just prepare our hearts and our our ears and everything to just hear what you have to say to us this morning. Um, We just thank you and we love you. And um, yeah, cool. So the verse that I've been given is from Luke 43 to 45, and so it's the tree and its fruit. So Jesus says, and this is kind of a tongue-twistery one, so I'll try and get it right. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good person brings good things out of the good stored up in their heart, and an evil person brings evil from the evil stored up in their heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So I feel like this verse is pretty self-explanatory. If our hearts are good, it will overflow into good thoughts, good words, and good actions. The more our inner worlds are transformed by Jesus, the more the fruits of the Spirit will be evident in our lives. But I'll just be clear from the outset that as wonderful as our hearts are, they've all got a bit of what the Bible calls sin in them, a bit of brokenness. So the verses aren't meaning that we should be expecting to be in a place where we never think or say or do anything that's less than life-giving. If you ask Dave, he could tell you a thing or two that comes out of my mouth that's not very pretty from time to time. Or you know when you're about to say something that you know really doesn't need to be said, and you've got the voice in your head, probably God, being like, don't say it. You don't need to say it. Just don't say it, and then you say it anyway. So, yeah, those times. But I think that said, 
at the same time as followers of Jesus, we should be expecting nothing less than our hearts and our mouths and our actions to be increasingly drawn to goodness and life and beauty and redemption. I guess the question is how? How do we do that? How do we get good hearts? Is it from trying really, 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 really hard? Or from punishing ourselves and holding on to guilt when we say something stupid or do something that hurts someone? I honestly don't think that's the way God grows us. He's too good and his love is too powerful to need to resort to punishment. In my experience, good changes have come about in my heart through learning to abide in God, learning more and more how to rest in him and to let all growth and goodness and change come from that place to learn to be stilled in him and sink into our true identities, beloved, enough, delighted in. In fact, before Jesus preached these sermons, he went up onto the hill for the night by himself and hung out with God. And he's apparently a pretty good model on how we should be doing life. So we don't get good stuff in our hearts by making it up. That's not what Jesus did. We get it by spending time with God. So I'd just love to share a bit of my story about the way that God has been over the years enabling my heart more and more to function in the way that it was created to function. I'm definitely still very much a work in progress, but I know that I'm a beloved work in progress. I grew up in a Christian family, going to church and things, and reading back on my dorky diaries, I know that there was a real love of God there and a real seeking to find him, but there was also a guilt that I wasn't good enough or that I wasn't doing the right things, or that I wasn't obeying the Bible as well as I should be. And I don't know how many altar calls I responded to as a teenager to like be re-saved and then re-saved again. I was a bit of an anxious kid and pretty sensitive, and I ended up carrying a lot of what I didn't need to carry. And by the time I was 14, I was experiencing what the doctors called constant daily headaches, which just means, I don't know why you're experiencing this, so I'm just going to describe what you're feeling, basically. So it wasn't very helpful. (laughs) These kept ticking along despite going to numerous specialists, and the anxiety kind of ramped up as I headed off to uni, along with some other behaviours that were less than helpful. And I saw counsellors and things, and also talked to God about all the things that I was feeling. But I also just had times of being so fed up that God wasn't changing anything in me, or that I wasn't being miraculously healed. I remember going for a run in my early 20s, and just putting an ultimatum out there to God and being like, you need to do something. Like I'm at the end of myself and I don't know what to do. So you need to show up for me at church tomorrow. (laughs) And he actually did. I'm not saying that's how we get God to do stuff for us, but he did something. So at church, the pastor um, at the end felt prompted to just see if anyone wanted prayer for anxiety. So I went up and ended up chatting with his wife who had just come back from a course called The Lightning Process in Auckland, which deals with chronic pain stuff and mental health things. You learn to rewire your brain and create new healthy neurological pathways. So long story short, I ended up going on the course 10-ish years ago, and the outworking of it has really changed my life. So basically, I ended up looking at every thought I had and questioning whether it was actually true, And then applying a process, we learnt to choose a different thought that was actually the truth and rewiring my brain accordingly. It meant I had to really start reading the Bible and seeking out truth and then asking questions like, can I really believe this? 
Is it actually true? And if I do, then it kind of changes everything and is actually quite good news. So it was pretty gruelling, but obviously life-giving and really worth it. I remember God giving me a picture of a wineskin and also the word wineskin because you wouldn't know what a wineskin is by just looking at it if you hadn't encountered one before. So I googled it, as you do, because I knew there was some verse in the Bible about it, and read the commentary, and it was about us needing to be like new wineskins, which can stretch to hold new wine, which is a symbol of both the Holy Spirit and Jesus' new grace-filled ways of thinking, as opposed to religious fear-based ways. And it made a lot of sense and was also a reassurance, because being stretched isn't always super comfortable, but there's a purpose to it and a good godness to it and making room for new life and new ways of being. So I knew I had to tackle the anxiety first before the headaches would let up. And amazingly, as I let go of untrue stuff piled on my shoulders, shifts, physical shifts began to take place in my shoulders and neck and face where I didn't even realize I was tensing. But the biggest thing was the shift in the way I saw God and the way that I saw myself. As I questioned and continue to question now my beliefs around what being a good enough Christian is or about doing the right things or acting the right way, which I thought was having to be super extroverted and loud and hilarious, all of the things I feel like I'm not really. The main takeaway has been this whole thing about resting in God and the fruitfulness coming from that place. So learning that the main thing I'm called to do is hang out with God to seek his presence, to enjoy spending time with him, to press deeper into the knowledge of God through his word and the words of others and the words that he speaks directly to my heart. And I do forget this. I begin to strive and do and beat myself up for not being perfect. But when I'm reminded of God's reality, his upside-down kingdom, the one where he invites us to be little and held, invites us to rest in him, surrender as he grows us. It's like a deep exhale and the goodness and kindness and life and creative ways of thinking and being flood in. All good stuff comes from that place, not from guilt. If God wants us to change or do something within us, Ephesians 3, 20 to 21 says, he does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us, his spirit deeply and gently within us. He doesn't make us feel guilty. In my opinion, there's no point in doing anything out of guilt. There's no life in that. There's a verse in Philippians 2 verse 13, reading from the Amplified Bible. It says, For it is not your strength, but it is God who is effectively at work in you, both to will and to work, that is strengthening, energizing, and creating in you the longing and the ability to fulfill your purpose for his good pleasure. So he actually creates the longing in us to want to fulfill the things that he wants us to fulfill. Like, that's pretty good news, I think. Like, and he's asking us to do it by resting in him. Like, that's cool. <laughs> so I ended up feeling so sick of feeling guilty all the time for not doing enough for other people or not serving better that I said to God, if this is all true, then I give up doing the things unless you move me to. And God was like, great, let me edify you. So let me build you up. That was actually hard to hear because I thought he might just start telling me the stuff that he wanted to, uh, that I needed to change about myself. And I'm like pretty good with checklists. And it was fine for a day or two, but then I was like, okay, surely I need to do some stuff for you now. And he's like, let me edify you. 
Slowly but surely, I surrendered to that and began living more in the reality that I was enough for God to want to be with as I was, and trusting that he'd lead me into the changes he wanted to work within me in the beautiful way that he does. Because I knew I was safe in his love, I could begin seeing other people as lovely, adored people, and he started bringing about a new tenderness for other broken and hurting people. I actually felt like being more generous with my money and my time, not because it was the right thing to do, but because God's reality was starting to filter into my reality. I began asking, and he began giving me words of encouragement and love for people in my world. Obviously, I still have heaps of work that God needs to do in me. I'm selfish and egocentric, and I lose my temper, and I get a bit anxious about things that I don't need to, but there's a whole lot less guilt there and rather a trust and openness to God working change within me. And when there is guilt, I stop and remind myself what the truth is, or Dave reminds me. And even if I ever became a good person, I could never boast about it because I didn't do anything apart from letting myself be loved and surrendering to what God was doing within me and following the promptings he was giving me and the leadings he was placing in my heart. So it's funny because through this process of realignment, and sinking into trusting God to make my heart and therefore my words and actions good, my literal written words have become transformed. So I've always quite liked writing. As a kid, I wrote some pretty awesome poems about my cat and teddy bears and the sunset. But as a teenager and young adult, I had this urge and like a longing to write, but there was never much there, or if it was, it was dark stuff that didn't make me feel good writing it down. But once I began the process of letting God's love transform me, it also transformed and made my writing begin to flow out of me. I had stuff to say because my heart was overflowing. I couldn't help it. I read a quote by Thomas Fuller, who's a 15th century British historian, who said, when the heart is afire, some sparks will fly out of the mouth. I quite like that. Like, isn't that's great? Yeah. So in this surrendering and trusting God to make me good as I press into him and rest there, he has brought about beautiful things. Over the past two years, I've been intentionally writing more poetry, and as God has pulled my heart to that place, I've been honing my craft, and the journey God has me on as a poet is so joyful and unexpected. As I write with God, the words are transformed from lament and confusion, anger and guilt, to something that holds beauty or hope or a change in perspective. I feel so thankful to God for the way he stirs my heart, for the words that we create together and the joy that I get from performing my poems, the privilege it is to be able to speak words of life and hope to people and also the therapy it is for my own heart. At the open mic night where I read my poems at each month, it's such a wonderful mixed bag of people. <laughs> like, it's, it's great. But there does tend to be a fair amount of hopelessness in people's words, and I feel placed in that space on purpose. Not that I'm never lamenting myself, but there's always God there offering his perspective and holding out redemption. At the end of the month, I'm competing in the National Poetry Slam finals in Auckland. Woo, woo! <laughs> It's a bit hilarious that I'm going and I feel completely underqualified, but God is reminding me that my job is to simply rest in him and offer the words that we've created together and that the fruitfulness of those words in people's lives are actually up to him. 
that I can enjoy without the striving to be the most popular. I'm already enough and loved and safe. So a year ago, I wrote a poem called Enclosed that I'll read to you shortly. But it's such a great example of how the kindness of God can lead to such beautiful repentance and healing. It had been a hard week with the kids, and my words and actions on a particular day hadn't been kind or gentle. And luckily, Mum looked after the girls for the weekend so Dave and I could have some downtime, and I just remember going to the beach and feeling really, really crap. I ended up just sitting down and just starting to write a poem. And then halfway through, God just kind of came in and just took over my words and just started to speak about my hands and the goodness in them. Yeah, it just really touched me and I cried and I felt really just forgiven and loved. And the next day, Dave and I went to church, extra brownie points because we didn't even have kids. We were having the weekend to ourselves and we still went to church. I know, but I just felt a real want to repent to someone and I found the lovely Teresa and I spoke to her and she listened as she so wonderfully does and prayed for me. But the repentance, yeah, was 100% not driven by guilt. It was driven by love and a forgiveness that was already given. Here's a poem called Enclosed. These two hands have been enclosed by pars, oversized and calloused farmer's fingers, felt the fragility of sun-drenched blackberries, caressed keys in such a way as to rouse tears from dim blue eyes, tracking down well-creased cheeks, soft like warm rising dough. How do these hands forget such things have blessed them, been blessed by them, to commit such sacrilege against themselves, skin and sinew and bone clasping flesh of my flesh, graceless, a weakness I can't look in the eye. A loss of orientation must masquerade as something in here. It looks like domination. It is loud. It is ugly. Here it is damnation. Come. Come, hands. Let me enfold you. Oh, I will hold you close to my chest, to my lips, to my breath, and I will utter only softness. Kiss you over and over in my tongue. It won't stop pouring out upon you the scent of blooming cabbage trees and warm harakeke flowers and the feeling of your young body wading through thigh-high grasses, summer dry, lone roaming under blushing skies. Cleave to me, sweet palms, and this will be your song, and we will be one, and you'll find yourself home. This whole thing of running to God instead of away from him when we've done something dumb is something that he really encourages In Isaiah 30, the Israelites are in danger and are fleeing the Assyrians. And instead of looking to God for help as a trusted friend and to do things his way, they want to flee back to Egypt and stand as an ally to someone who had oppressed them. God tells them, In returning to me and resting in me, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trusting confidence shall be your strength. So I reckon that in those crappy situations like the one I described before, where we haven't been the parent or friend or colleague that we've wanted to be. Instead of running and hiding ourselves in our oppressors, which could be guilt that keeps us hard and keeps us stuck in the yucky cycle, or even hiding ourselves in self-righteousness where we try to justify our behaviour, and instead come to God in honesty, 
laying everything we're trying to hide from out before Him in a posture of humility, with self-compassion, surrendering again, stilling ourselves, weaknesses and all, softening our hearts and accepting the love that is God's presence. That is how we are redeemed, how we are growing, how we are strengthened, how our hearts become good. Although it doesn't seem like a proactive answer to losing our rags at our kids slash parents or partners or selves, stilling ourselves before God and surrender and trust can only ever bring life. And God is always doing something. It's from that place that our strength is renewed, not somehow conjured up from within ourselves, but God's strength. All the goodness God wants to bring about in our hearts is not, in most cases, an instantaneous thing. But as we learn to find that still place to do life from more and more, gradually we begin to be transformed. The fruit of the Spirit becomes evident in our lives, not through pushing and striving, but by allowing God to do His beautiful work within us. Jesus says in Matthew, Are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So I encourage you to press into God, to ask Him to speak to you of who you are to Him and who He is, to search out what He says about you and what He says about His character and His Word. There is so much beauty there. I encourage him to let him woo you. Encourage you to let him woo you. So I see. As a, re- a response, we're inviting you to take a moment to reflect, perhaps on a belief that you that may be holding you back from really settling into the powerful love that God has for you, from allowing yourself to abide there, trusting God to do the good work He so longs to do within you, that will make you more fully alive. Can you ask God to tell you what the truth really is, what He really says about you or Himself, that you are delighted in, that He is enough, that surrendering to Him isn't weak? What truth is God inviting you to abide in? Once, you've had, once you have something, if you'd like to, you're invited to come and grab a piece of chalk. There's chalk here and here. And just write on the rocks what that truth is as a visual reminder for yourself. We're also inviting you to come and take communion if you'd like to. Because of His death on the cross, Jesus has already forgiven us for all of our sin, all our brokenness. He's not surprised by what we bring Him. And He is ready to take the heavy things and exchange them for truth, for rest, for redemption, for life. As the band plays, feel free to take part as you feel you'd like to, and then simply allow yourself to abide in Him. I'm available for prayer, and probably Francis, maybe some other prayer people. Um, I'll leave you with a short poem It's an invitation to let go of all the things that hinder and be fully submerged in the river of God. Going under. Place me in the stream that holds me. Even as life leaves me, I want to wade in it. 
tucking skirt into knickers, feel the current at my thighs and actually forget about clothes. I'll throw them to the wind and be submerged, sprouting gills and fins and tail. Here I'll be with a glint of sunlight on silvered scales and the endless press of love. That was part four of our series on the Sermon on the Plain. And our deep hope is that you may lean into the endless press of love. At the River Opawaho, we often say, You are loved, you are liked, you are broken, you are forgiven, and you're entrusted with the kingdom. If you want to make sure you keep up to date with this series, then make sure that you subscribe or maybe even like the podcast. But until next time, Te Arohanoa me Te Rangi Marie Ki Grace and peace to you. Thank you.